Part One, Chapters Seven and Eight of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville, translated by Henry Reeve. Part One, Chapter Seven, of the cause of a leaning to pantheism amongst democratic nations. I shall take occasion hereafter to show under what form the preponderating taste of a democratic people for very general ideas manifests itself in politics, but I would point out at the present stage of my work its principal effect on philosophy. It cannot be denied that pantheism has made great progress in our age. The writings of a part of Europe bear visible marks of it. The Germans introduce it into philosophy, and the French into literature. Most of the works of imagination published in France contain some opinions or some tinge caught from pantheistical doctrines, or they disclose some tendency to such doctrines in their authors. This appears to me not only to proceed from an accidental, but from a permanent cause. When the conditions of society are becoming more equal, and each individual man becomes more like all the rest, more weak and more insignificant, a habit grows up of ceasing to notice the citizens, to consider only the people, and of overlooking individuals to think only of their kind. At such times the human mind seeks to embrace a multitude of different objects at once, and it constantly strives to succeed in connecting a variety of consequences with a single cause. The idea of unity so possesses itself of man, and is sought for by him so universally, that if he thinks he has found it, he readily yields himself up to repose in that belief. Nor does he content himself with the discovery that nothing is in the world but a creation and the creator. Still embarrassed by this primary division of things, he seeks to expand and to simplify his conception by including God and the universe in one great whole. If there be a philosophical system which teaches that all things material and immaterial, visible and invisible, which the world contains, are only to be considered as the several parts of an immense being which alone remains unchanged amidst the continual change and ceaseless transformation of all that constitutes it, we may readily infer that such a system, although it destroys the individuality of man, nay, rather because it destroys that individuality, will have secret charms for men living in democracies. All their habits of thought prepare them to conceive it, and predispose them to adopt it. It naturally attracts and fixes their imagination. It fosters the pride, while it soothes the indolence of their minds. Amongst the different systems by whose aid philosophy endeavors to explain the universe, I believe pantheism to be one of those most fitted to seduce the human mind in democratic ages. Against it, all who abide in their attachment to the true greatness of man should struggle and combine. Chapter 8 the principle of equality suggests to the Americans the idea of the indefinite perfectibility of man. Equality suggests to the human mind several ideas which would not have originated from any other source, and it modifies almost all those previously entertained. I take as an example the idea of human perfectibility, because it is one of the principal notions the intellect can conceive, and because it constitutes of itself a great philosophical theory which is every instant to be traced by its consequences in the practice of human affairs. 
Although man has many points of resemblance with the brute creation, one characteristic is peculiar to himself. He improves. They are incapable of improvement. Mankind could not fail to discover this difference from its earliest period. The idea of perfectibility is therefore as old as the world. Equality did not give birth to it, although it has imparted to it a novel character. When the citizens of a community are classed according to their rank, their profession, or their birth, and when all men are constrained to follow the career which happens to open before them, everyone thinks that the utmost limits of human power are to be discerned in proximity to himself, and none seeks any longer to resist the inevitable law of his destiny. Not indeed that an aristocratic people absolutely contests man's faculty of self-improvement, but they do not hold it to be indefinite. Amelioration they conceive, but not change. They imagine that the future condition of society may be better, but not essentially different. And whilst they admit that mankind has made vast strides in improvement, and may still have some to make, they assign to it beforehand certain impossible limits. Thus they do not presume that they have arrived at the supreme good or at absolute truth. What people or what man was ever wild enough to imagine it? but they cherish a persuasion that they have pretty nearly reached that degree of greatness and knowledge which our imperfect nature admits of, and as nothing moves about them they are willing to fancy that everything is in its fit place. Then it is that the legislator affects to lay down eternal laws, that kings and nations will raise none but imperishable monuments, and that the present generation undertakes to spare generations to come the care of regulating their destinies. In proportion as castes disappear and the classes of society approximate, as manners, customs, and laws vary from the tumultuous intercourse of men, as new facts arise, as new truths are brought to light, as ancient opinions are dissipated and others take their place, the image of an ideal perfection, forever on the wing, presents itself to the human mind. Continual changes are then every instant occurring under the observation of every man. The position of some is rendered worse, and he learns but too well that no people and no individual, how enlightened soever they may be, can lay claim to infallibility. The conditions of others is improved, whence he infers that man is endowed with an indefinite faculty of improvement. His reverses teach him that none may hope to have discovered absolute good. His success stimulates him to the never-ending pursuit of it. Thus, forever seeking, forever falling to rise again, often disappointed but not discouraged, he tends unceasingly towards that unmeasured greatness so indistinctly visible at the end of the long track which humanity has yet to tread. It can hardly be believed how many facts naturally flow from the philosophical theory of the indefinite perfectibility of man, or how strong an influence it exercises even on men who, living entirely for the purposes of action and not of thought, seem to conform their actions to it without knowing anything about it. I accost an American sailor, and I inquire why the ships of his country are built so as to last but for a short time. He answers without hesitation that the art of navigation is every day making such rapid progress that the finest vessel would become almost useless if it lasted beyond a certain number of years. In these words, which fell accidentally and on a particular subject from a man of rude attainments, 
I recognize the general and systematic idea upon which a great people directs all its concerns. Aristocratic nations are naturally too apt to narrow the scope of human perfectibility, democratic nations to expand it beyond compass. End of Part 1 Chapters 7 and 8